0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Did you know Australia's become the first country to recognise psychedelics as medicines? Maybe you're a bit surprised by that. It happened late last week. MDMA and psilocybin, which is the component in magic mushrooms, they've been approved to treat some mental health conditions. This decision's taken a lot of people by surprise. So how's it all going to work? We're going to be diving into this big announcement a little later. Also, the US shot down a Chinese spy balloon over the weekend. What happened there, and what's going to happen next? We've got an analyst on who'll be able to shed a bit of light. First, though, to Canberra.
2: I think it's really important for us to get the detail
1: to understand what it is the government's proposing on Triple J. Look, it is going to be the biggest political issue of 2023. Whether or not Australia should have a First Nations voice, a body that advises Parliament on policies that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Later in the year, we're going to have a referendum on it. Sahak's going to look at this issue a lot, as you can imagine. Today, we'll speak with one of the members of the working group on the referendum. Yes, campaigner, Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy. But first, Shalila Madora is here to bring you up to speed on what's happened over the last few weeks.
3: Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, has started the parliamentary year with a glass half full attitude.
1: I am very pleased
3: to be back and uh, looking forward to the parliamentary sitting, but the the year
1: of the voice, actually.
3: With the Pollies back in Canberra after their summer break, the hard work of selling the voice to Aussie voters begins.
1: Yes, there are already people out there pushing misinformation on social media, drumming up outrage, trying to start a culture war. That's an inevitable consequence of trying to
0: achieve change.
3: Anthony Albanese, who backs the voice to Parliament, will have to hustle because he's facing opposition from other politicians who are against it. So the National Party has made a position that we will not support the voice uh, to Parliament. Last year, the Nats came out saying they were voting no. And the Greens were set for a messy split within the party, with the party leadership being for a voice and Aboriginal Affairs spokeswoman Linda Thorpe being against it. And we deserve better than an advisory body... We have an opportunity to have a treaty They could put 10 independent black seats in the Senate today. Then today, Lydia Thorpe dropped the bombshell announcement that division over The Voice has prompted her to leave the party and remain in Parliament as an independent.
4: Now I will be able to speak
3: freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective without being constrained by portfolios and agreed party positions. Then there's the question of the Libs.
2: I think it's really important for us to get the detail, to understand what it is the government's proposing.
3: Opposition leader Peter Dutton has written to the government demanding answers to 15 questions about the structure and role of the voice.
2: Frankly, most Australians are asking for uh, the detail as well, and I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for the detail. There are some models which could work, others that can't.
3: The government invited Mr Dutton to last week's referendum working group to try and answer some of those questions. The Libs haven't outright said they're opposed to The Voice and Minister Burney hopes they don't.
4: I think it would be more damaging for the Liberal Party to campaign against The Voice, quite frankly.
3: Professor Megan Davis is a constitutional law expert who's been working on The Voice for more than a decade. She told the ABC that not all of Mr Dutton's questions can be answered right now. There's, you know, only so far we can go in terms of those
1: questions. I mean, we can't tell you the address or location of the building or what the voice um, will be or what the business cards will look like. Prime Minister
3: Anthony Albanese says those calling for detail are missing the point of the Constitution.
1: The Constitution establishes the principles. So, for example, it says we will have an army and a navy doesn't say we'll have an air force because there weren't planes flying in 1901 when the constitution was written
3: yes campaigners don't have long to get everyone on board the government is expected to introduce legislation to set up a referendum that is a vote to change the constitution next month and voting could happen in august hack on triple j
1: Shalala Madora with that update. I want to get into this a bit more now. So Malandiri McCarthy, the Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, is with us now. Hey, Senator McCarthy, thanks for joining us on Hack.
4: Hello, Dave, and hi to all your listeners across the country.
1: Senator, firstly, the big news out of Canberra today, as we just heard, Senator Lydia Thorpe has quit the Greens over divisions on the voice to Parliament. She's been really critical of pursuing a voice before treaty. We're still waiting to see if the Greens are going to commit to supporting the voice in the referendum. Do you think that's more likely now Lydia Thorpe isn't in the
4: Greens? We certainly encourage the Greens to uh, make a decision that gives surety and confidence to the Australian people but also to First Nations people that they do want to see uh, the voice succeed at this year's referendum and get behind it wholeheartedly. There's no doubt uh, the Greens have had their conversations and internal issues but that's for the Greens and obviously uh, today's a day for them to talk about but in terms of where we hope to see uh, the rest of the conversation go It's about supporting the voice and we ask all parliamentarians, uh, also Senator Lydia Thorpe in whatever capacity she is, uh, to consider still uh, supporting the voice as we head towards the referendum.
1: Senator Thorpe has said that she's going to be able to speak more freely. Are you worried about what that could mean for the Yes campaign going forward, potentially having a really vocal opponent garnering a lot of support on the left side of politics?
4: Senator Thorpe has always spoken quite passionately about her views and I'm sure we're going to see more of that in whatever role she takes uh, in the Senate. But I would say that uh, this is such a critical year for First Nations people but for all Australians. We want to see unity, we want to see understanding and respect and we want to see a positive outcome with the referendum, Dave. And the best way to do that is to continue talking and engaging with one another in a manner that uh, does give confidence to the Australian people that this is the way to go.
1: Are you surprised by the debate so far? Because it does really feel like it's moving really quickly. Like if you think about it, we're in February, Parliament only just returned today. The voice campaign proper hasn't really started, but there's so much information out there, discussion. Are you surprised by where we're at at this point? And how much um support maybe a no vote has on both sides of the political divide
4: it's still early we're still a fair way way away from an actual vote and i am confident though as uh, the month of february moves along and we get to what we hope is the uh, beginning of the yes campaign towards the end of the month that more australians will become more engaged in a much more positive way. Sure, there'll always be questions, Dave, but at the heart of this is really about uh, uh, respect and recognition and also consultation to include First Nations people. That's why we want to see a voice enshrined in, in the Constitution.
1: I guess there's a lot of people out there, young Australians in particular, who will be hearing the arguments for a no vote, arguments like, should we fo- should we be focusing first on treaty? Maybe there's a belief that the voice doesn't have enough power to change things or suggestions that the voice would have an impact on First Nations people's sovereignty. Those people might have initially thought about voting, yes, but now they're not sure, they don't know what to think. What do you say to them?
4: Well, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, that... Uh, the Premiers and Chief Ministers have agreed in principle to support the voice. And each state and territory is embarking on a treaty. They're at different stages. Victoria is well ahead of some of the other states. Queensland is trying to move ahead. The Northern Territory. So we know that treaty is being embarked upon. South Australia is moving towards legislating for a voice. So each state and territory jurisdiction is already almost ahead of us if you like dave in terms of treaty but what the uluru statement asked for in 2017 was voice treaty truth and we in the federal parliament see that having a voice and encouraging australians to vote yes in a referendum is the first step then there's truth telling then there's treaty or treaty and truth telling with the makarata commission so we are absolutely committed to the three elements of the Uluru Statement. And secondly, on the issue of sovereignty, there has been legal advice that has shown that sovereignty for First Nations people will not be ceded and never will be, certainly not through a voice to parliament.
1: You were speaking before about things kicking into gear a bit more later this month in terms of the campaign, in terms of the information people might be seeing out there. Do you think the Yes campaign, though, has been a bit slow to get going?
4: A lot of work is taking place behind the scenes. You've got uh, so many people who are part of the referendum working group and the referendum engagement group. And there are other mechanical things which sound really boring, I know, but they're really technical matters that have to be done by the Parliament, like the referendum legislation, for example, Dave. The last time our country, and this is for our listeners, especially our young ones who've never perhaps voted in a referendum, the last time we had one, there was no social media. You know, there was certainly no opportunity to vote over a couple of weeks. Uh, There was no opportunity to vote by phone as you did in COVID. So we have to change some of the mechanics in the legislation just to enable it to be updated to, to a new century of voting in a referendum.
1: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Labor Senator and Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians, Malanderry McCarthy. We're chatting about the debate around a First Nations Voice to Parliament. You'll be hearing a lot about it in the news at the moment, and a lot more in the months ahead. A referendum coming up later this year. Senator, you were talking a, a bit about you know how young people wouldn't have experienced a referendum before. Like I've never voted in a referendum before. How well, there confident? You go, and I'm sure most of your <laughs>
4: listeners haven't either. Yeah, and it's a, I mean... it's a
1: it's a big thing to like feel like you're informed and have all the information available. How confident are you that this will be successful? Because if we look at the past of referenda passed in Australia, they're more likely not to succeed.
4: Yeah, yes, spot on, Dave. You know, we know that there's been 44 across Australia referendums held and only eight have succeeded and those stats are pretty stark. But it also shows that we are... I guess, as Australians, being courageous in our belief that this is the way to go and to not try, to not try uh, would be worse.
1: Opposition leader Peter Dutton's saying there's not enough detail out there. We're hearing from the government that there is detail. Experts are saying we can't give too much detail because we risk muddying the waters. How do you make sure that people know exactly how this voice is going to work? Because obviously they're going to be thinking, well, I'm not sure how to vote if I don't understand the mechanism.
4: I think Professor Megan Davis uh, said it most recently, and that is this is asking Australians to consider First Nations people in the Constitution, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, to be considered in the founding document in terms of the Westminster system of governance. We're not identified anywhere in that document. And I think that's uh, at the heart of this. And in terms of deeper detail, the Uluru Statement has said, and I know that uh, people like Professor Marcia Langton, Noel Pearson, Professor Davies, have said that the detail will be left to the Parliament. And this is an important point. It's for Parliament then. If, overwhelmingly, Australians vote yes, then it's up to the Parliament to determine the details
1: senator what happens if the referendum isn't successful what would be the consequences for first nations australians but also australia more broadly
4: well that's the journey we're on isn't it dave Uh, there's no doubt uh, that the stats are against us in terms of uh, referendum details and statistics from the past but this has to be a journey of faith it has to be a journey of the heart and i call on all australians put aside your fears let's be courageous and unafraid To walk together and make sure that this vote is overwhelmingly yes
1: just on another issue there's also been some news out today that alcohol bans are going to be reinstated in central australia on the back of a spike in crime and violence in alice springs i know obviously you know the territory very well alice springs very well Mm -hmm. do you think this is the right move
4: well we certainly want to see the bans uh, in terms of those uh, town camps and communities around Central Australia so that, again, in addition to what occurred two weeks ago when the Prime Minister came and Linda Burney, uh, that we had a circuit breaker in terms of the weekend takeaway bans and the hourly bans throughout uh, the week in terms of takeaway. We want to see that uh, this is the next step in that. But we've also surrounded it, if you like, Dave, with additional support. Uh, We've heard many uh, experts in the field speak about the deeper problems beyond alcohol we know that there are health problems so for example we're going to be dealing with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders Uh, we want to fund that we want to look at job creation and improved community safety and cohesion so this uh, ban now will enable us to hopefully get ahead in those areas that we should get ahead in in order for people to live safe and healthy lives in central australia and beyond
1: labour senator malandieri mccarthy thanks so much for joining us on hack
4: thank you hack
1: on triple j and yeah we'll be diving into these issues around the referendum and a first nations voice a lot more in the months ahead so make sure you keep listening hack they'll only be prescribed by specifically authorized psychiatrists
3: it's not just giving ecstasy on triple j
1: Yeah, for years we've been hearing about studies finding things like MDMA and psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, could be a game changer when it comes to treating some mental health conditions. Lots of research around the world. Also, very vocal group of advocates here in Australia who've been campaigning for changes to allow psychedelics to be used as medicines. Well, on Friday there was an announcement that took a lot of people by surprise. Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration saying... Yep. MDMA, psilocybin, they're going to be able to be prescribed to treat mental health conditions from July. So we're now one of the first countries in the world to recognise psychedelics as medicine. So how is it all going to work? What does it mean? What's the significance? Well, Dr. David Caldecott is from ANU's medical school and he's with us now. Hey, David, thanks for joining us on How are you going? Yeah, well, thank Hiya. you. This announcement, did it surprise you? Was it something you expected to, to happen?
2: <laughs> Look, it didn't just surprise me, it surprised everybody. Um, the timing of it, you know, just wasn't on the horizon. Uh, we knew that it had been considered, it had been rejected recently, in fact. Um, and I think there is an inevitability about this happening around the world at, at some stage. Um, but Australia had not actually been leading the charge uh, as far as drug law reform is concerned in the last decade or so. So something like this was really surprising not only to us, but to people overseas as well. So now we're like a world leader in this space. <laughs> I know, by default. It's extraordinary to find ourselves in this uh, situation and we should celebrate it.
1: So what kind of difference do you think it will make?
2: Well, I think um, the first and foremost, it allows a completely new category or style of uh, treatment to be introduced for uh, conditions which are tragically just refractory or untreatable at the moment. Um, in, uh, specifically for PTSD, for refractory PTSD and refractory depression. Um, there are a lot of people who suffer these conditions and uh, now we have a, a full, full toolbox uh, to address them. What's very interesting about these drugs is that, say, if your cholesterol was elevated, you might need to be on a, uh, an anti-cholesterol drug for the rest of your life. But these drugs facilitate therapy. Um, So you take a a course of these drugs while you're having uh, psychotherapy, and they continue to work after you finish taking them. Um, And that's fascinating. Uh, And uh, so people who might be concerned that their their colleagues or their loved ones will be on a course of psychedelic drugs for the rest of their lives need to disabuse themselves of that position. And in the knowledge that the drugs that have been used to treat these refractory conditions are in fact being supplanted by drugs which are curing people which we thought were uncurable
1: right okay so it could mean that people are able to get off medications earlier perhaps we've got some messages coming through someone says super excited I was in one of the MDMA and psilocybin trials and it changed my life entirely for the better But then we've got another um, message from Jeff who says my cousin had a bad mushroom trip and his mates had to reassure him for hours how do doctors know what's the right amount that's an interesting question how do we know how much to treat a person with what goes into that whole um, thought process?
2: Oh, well, I think that's an excellent question and a completely logical one. You, you, you've got to understand that the, what we're talking about here is not the MDMA that maybe some of your listeners have consumed at bush duffs or wherever they've consumed it before. This is a very... Specific dose that has been designed, um, that has been worked out through trial and error. Um, there's, for example, another trial going on at the moment in the United States, looking at a different dose, and it's also using a product that is very pure. Um, so there's no question that there'll be any contamination. So, and the final element in the in the uh, uh, in the equation is that patients will be selected for their appropriateness for treatment. There, for whatever treatment you use in medicine, it, it's not one uh, size fits all. There will be people who would not be suitable for this sort of treatment. So with a very carefully selected patient population, a very pure drug of known dose administered under um, medical supervision, you're dealing with something that's actually rather safe.
1: Right, okay. So just to be clear, if people aren't going to be able to just rock up to the doctor and say, hey, can I have a script for some MDMA, please?
2: I think it's actually going to be considerably more difficult than that in the first instance. So it's been rescheduled from a poison, or a Schedule 9, to what's called a Schedule 8. Um, and that means that it's all be locked up and documented. You need to be an authorised prescriber. I won't be, for example, able to prescribe it. Uh, it needs to be a psychiatrist who is uh, familiar with the conditions for which it's indicated. And so it actually might be um, a little bit difficult to get, even for people who feel that they uh, could benefit from it. And that's probably the safest way. Uh, to start this sort of program in Australia. So it's definitely not going to be available at your street corner chemist.
1: Right, okay. Dr. Caldercot. the reaction has been a bit mixed though because there are some experts out there, including those who are doing their own research into this, saying, we don't have enough data on the long-term impact of the use of these substances as medicines. We're so getting some messages through. Someone says, not sure how I feel about allowing prescription psychedelics. What do you say to those people?
2: Oh, I, I think that's completely understandable. Because remember, of course, all that they've ever been told uh, for the last two decades is that these are terribly dangerous um, and the consequences of consuming uh, any at all could be lethal. Um, So that sort of response is completely understandable. But also, by the same token, there's an awful lot of science and research that's gone into this. Um, And there are groups that stand to benefit who we really want to benefit. There's some very uh, illustrious scientists and indeed Figures from society in Australia, uh, Admiral Barry, um, who was previously I understand that the, the um, head of your defense forces, is supporting this. Of course, the ADF itself um, has almost twice the incidence of PTSD than the normal population, so this could benefit our veterans too. Um, so the, the idea that this is some sort of willy nilly uh, introduction without all of the trials. the FDA, which is the tga 's equivalent in the United States, was so impressed with the data that they provided accelerated approval for the trials. So this has been going on elsewhere in the world quite extensively, and it might just be the case that people haven't heard about it.
1: Right, okay. And, I mean, we're getting messages through some veterans as well who are messaging in as well. Um, What about where it's going to come from? Like, are you able to give any insight about how, um, you know, pharmacists are going to have access to this? Because that would be a whole other different thing that needs to be considered (laughs) as well.
2: You're absolutely right, again, and of course, this is something that has uh, faced um, the introduction of, say, cannabinoid m- medicine as well. So there's been a precedent recently about the remedicalization of some of these drugs. Um, there's not a lot of detail in what's been announced. Um, the, the, one of the biggest problems, of course, is that MDMA is well out of patent. I mean, that was invented in the early uh, 1905, 1910 sort of era. So it's not as if a pharmaceutical company is going to be producing it at large quantities um, for profit. But there are organizations out there, one in particular in the States called MAPS, um, who is all over the production and uh, supply of a pharmaceutical grade MDMA product, which is appropriate for human consumption.
1: And I mean, I imagine there are other countries around the world that are looking into this as well. Is this Australia probably going to be seen as a bit of a test case here? People are going to be watching what we're doing.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely sure. If you look at, say, for example, social media, a lot of the big players in this space are incredibly complimentary about this decision. Um, and fascinated about why, for example, it's happened in Australia so quickly. Um, it has occurred in other jurisdictions, but Australia is very much in the first tranche of people looking at this. And it may be um, that some of the, um, the, the influence of our veteran colleagues and people associated with them have, have been involved in this. Are you seeing
1: a big change in the way society here in Australia, Dr. Caldercot, is looking at these kinds of issues? Like, we've had lots of reforms in recent years in terms of medicinal cannabis and those sorts of things. Is there a bit of a shift happening?
2: Oh, uh, look, I think so. I mean, when one of your senior colleagues, uh, Mr. Kinane, was sitting in your seat, we were talking about this. And we were being flogged <laughs> for uh, ch- daring to chat about such issues. Was that a few and years now- ago? Oh, my God, decades, decades ago. Um, And uh, so we've seen now uh, in recent years the uh, legislation to allow uh, medicinal cannabis to be used by patients. We've seen uh, Australia's first pill testing program introduced in the ACT. Um, We've seen uh, bills for decriminalization. I think it's going to be very difficult in this space um, for our elected representatives to continue saying things like, all drug use is terrible when in fact some of the drugs that they're railing against are being used as pharmaceutical agents and so there is a bit of a crunch coming uh, for australia to try to arrive at a conclusion about what it really thinks about drugs ideally the whole function of dealing with drugs has got to be reducing harm associated with it um, and I think that's a dialogue that needs to happen in the next few years. Well, we
1: appreciate your analysis as always. Thank you so much, much David, uh, Dr. David Coultercot <laughs> from ANU's medical school. Thank you for joining us on Hack. Anytime.
0: Hack. President Biden gave the green light to take it down over the Atlantic. They successfully took it down on Triple J.
1: Yeah, even if you weren't really following the news closely over the weekend, you might have seen something about this. The US shot down a Chinese spy balloon over the Atlantic Ocean. A spy balloon? What even is that? I guess we can kind of figure it out. Well, shooting it down, what's that going to mean for the already strained relationship between China and the US? But a lot of questions. Don't have a lot of time, but we're going to ask a few. Let's ask an expert, Professor Gordon Flake, Chief Executive Officer of the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia. Hey, Professor Flake, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Can you explain what a spy
0: balloon is? Well, look, they're, they're not new. They've been around for a long time, but we would be foolish to dismiss this as something out of the, the 1800s. Um, uh, weather balloons are launched about 800 times every day. Uh, they can go to very high in the altitude, 24 kilometers up in the air. And they're really good at, at kind of assessing the Earth at a relatively low cost. And so we use that a lot. Um, obviously, in this case, uh, the Chinese have, have attached to a very large weather balloon, if you will, an intelligence gathering array, which is a lot closer to the ground than a satellite is, moves a lot slower than a satellite does, uh, and, and presumably, from a Chinese perspective, gives them eyes and ears, if you will, over developments uh, that they are interested in. So the U. US... Uh, and it's quite. It's it's actually something that security specialists are taking a lot more serious uh, than what may seem like kind of a funny story of the old man and up kind of riding yeah. a balloon with his house up there. It's a little bit different. Than well, that.
1: that's interesting. I wanted to get into some of the like reaction. What has China had to say, and could this lead to some kind of retaliation?
0: Well, initially they denied that it was that there at all. Uh, then after those denials, it was just a, a weather balloon that went off 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 of course of course um uh, and then eventually after the united states made the decision to shoot it down they've condemned that action on the part of the united states the real question and nobody knows this for sure is chinese intent in all this was this just a a, a dumb mistake um where it did get out of control which doesn't seem likely given the number of them going on and they are just been rather ham-handed in their response or it was this intentional? Was it designed to embarrass President Biden? Was it designed to provoke uh, the strong US response that it did? Because it really has provoked a very robust response in the United States, which has effectively quashed what was a rather nascent or budding uh, you know, diplomatic breakthrough, or not breakthrough, but potential yeah. progress after the party congress last October. And just
1: very quickly, Professor Flake, could it have an impact on Australia's relationship with China or this?
0: Oh, probably not, except for it just gives clarity uh, and probably douses our own expectations of of, uh, of a reopening. It makes it clear that any hopes that we might have that China, after Xi Jinping was anointed for his third term, is turning a new leaf, that there's going to be a kinder and gentler t- China. It's not necessarily a kinder and gentler China at this point, and I think that probably is... Should lower our own expectations.
1: Well, we appreciate uh, you explaining all that to us. It's definitely a story that got a lot of people talking over the weekend and just crazy to see. Um, Professor Gordon Flake, Chief Executive Officer of the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia, thank you very much for joining us on Hack.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Hack on Triple J.
1: And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.